0: Welcome back for season six of Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Thing, the 1982 sci-fi horror film directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell. High-level plot summary, a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 84%, and the critics' consensus reads... Grimmer and more terrifying than the 1950s take, John Carpenter's The Thing is a tense sci-fi thriller, rife with compelling tension and some remarkable makeup effects. If you like sci-fi and or horror and haven't seen this film, I can strongly recommend it. And you should consider this a spoiler warning for the rest of the conversation. My guests today are crew from the film. First, Bruce Humphrey. You're currently working as a first assistant director, but you were the DGA trainee on The Thing. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, kid. Next, we're joined by two members of the special makeup effects team, which at a high level was the shop responsible for all of the on-camera creature effects. First, Dave Kelsey. You've been working in special effects for 40 years, and your film credits run the gamut from Mission Impossible 2 to Dude, Where's My Car? And for the last 15 years, you've been working in television, including eight seasons of CSI New York, the final season of Dexter, and another eight seasons and counting on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. On The Thing, you're credited as the mechanical animation coordinator. Welcome. Thank you. Second, Ken Diaz. You're a multi-award winning makeup artist whose credits include, to name a few, two Academy Award nominations, three Emmy Awards, and a Saturn Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. On The Thing, you're credited as the special makeup effects coordinator. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And then finally, we're joined by the director of photography, Dean Kundi. Dean, you've collaborated with Robert Zemeckis six times, including all three Back to the Future films and Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Twice with Steven Spielberg, Hook and Jurassic Park, and central to our conversation today, you shot five of John Carpenter's films. Welcome to Below the Line.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, and it's a pleasure for me to have all of you here today. Let's start our conversation by discussing how each of you got involved with the film. Bruce, as the DGA trainee coming in with a fresh set of eyes, why don't you kick us off?
2: I was probably, of this group, one of the the last to join the the project because as a trainee, I would have only had a day or two of prep, uh, and then we would have gone into principal photography. So I joined uh, just prior to the start of shooting on stage at Universal. Uh, the compound that is featured in the, in the film was, was built on a stage there. We had some other uh, stage sets as well and needed to be able to shoot some of the things in sequence because if you see the film, you realize that by the end of the film, most of the compound has been destroyed. So we had to shoot all of the uh, portions of the film where the compound was intact first. Uh, there's also a point during the film where the power goes out and because we're in Antarctica, it would get cold and and, uh, we wanted to be able to see the actor's breath in realistic ways. So we actually had refrigerated the stages for a portion of the shoot. So I came on just prior to filming, just long enough to uh, learn all the actors' names and uh, set things up for the first day of shooting.
0: Well, taking a step back from that chaos that you were stepping into, Bruce, let's turn to Dean. Dean, you have a long collaborative history with John Carpenter. Tell us about how you became involved with the thing.
1: I had done quite a number of uh, low-budget action movies, and on about three or four of them, the script supervisor was Deborah Hill, who um, one day called me up and uh, said, so uh, I've written this movie with this uh, young guy who's... Done a couple movies, and uh, I think that you would be a great uh, team collaborator. And I said, "Oh, okay." In in my mind, I said, "Never heard of him." So John and I met about Halloween, and it was kind of an interesting and um, foreshadowing meeting because he said, "Well, let's run. Uh, here's one of my favorite movies," and he ran *The Thing*, the original one. Before either of us knew that that would actually show up somehow in our futures. So um, I worked on Halloween and um, The Fog and so forth. And then uh, one day he he came to me and said, um, my favorite movie, The Thing, uh, they want to do a remake of it, would you like to work on it? And I said, well, (laughs) naturally. So that was sort of how it it all began.
0: Dean, a question for you. Another of John Carpenter's key collaborators on this film was Rob Bottin who's the special makeup effects creator and who had recently completed work on The Howling, another classic of this genre. Is it true, Dean, that you introduced him to John Carpenter? I
1: don't know if I really introduced him. I I certainly gave him a good reference, you might say, because uh, I had done this uh, little movie, another Corman movie, Rock and Roll High School, and um, they had a visual gag they wanted to do during the, concert that the Ramones are giving, uh, they wanted the giant white rat. So they called in this young guy, of course, it it was uh, Rob. And um, he almost overnight made this most amazing white rat costume. And I said, wow, this guy is really good because he made made it look like something rather than just a costume that you'd get out of a Halloween uh, shop. So I remember... Um, when his name came up for the thing, I said, oh yeah, he's, uh, definitely somebody who, uh, is dedicated to the process and, and I think he would pr- probably be very good. Little did I realize at the time what the creatures were going to be. They weren't going to be fuzzy and white rats.
0: <laughs> that was, uh, yet to come. Well, with that, let's go a little bit further back in time with Rob Botin coming on the project. Can you share with me that you had met Rob even before that? Yes.
3: Hi, uh. I was uh, first heard about Rob through a childhood friend of his, Vince Prentiss. Now I was working with Vince back in 1976 on a movie called "Roar," uh, with a number of Lions, Tigers and Cougars, and it's since been dubbed the most dangerous movie ever made. Uh, <laughs> now, when Vince came out to help me, he um, was talking to me about a childhood friend of his, Rob Bontine, and they both grew up in Almani, and at the time I was living in Almani, California. And uh, Vince had told me about the stories of him and Rob uh, and their childhood escapades, And they used to do a lot of stunt work, goofing around, making little movies and stuff like that. And he told me Rob had been apprenticing with Rick Baker and working on movies like King Kong, The Incredible Melting Man, and had done uh, some of the aliens in the cantina scene in Star Wars. But I first actually met Rob personally in uh, 1977 when uh, Vince and I had visited him on the set of Piranha. Rob was in a um, pool, in a dive suit. Pool was over by the LA Coliseum. He was doing some underwater shots of uh, some rubber mechanical piranha puppets he had created. Uh, the following year, I had, uh, in 1978, I had come across an old creepy looking house in Almonte and they were about ready to tear it down. It was built in the 1880s. And I thought this would make a great haunted house, So I um, put some funds together, and I approached Rob to see if he'd be interested in participating. And Rob agreed and came on board, and he also recruited Chris Wayless and Robert Short. And uh, those are three future Academy Award winners who are all working on this project together. (laughs) It was was an amazing honor house for its time. So going forward, in 1981, I was uh, working with Carlo Rimbaldi doing some test painting on the E.T. character. And while I was there, Carlos took me over to a closet. He goes, come take a look at this, Ken. And we opened up this closet and on the floor in the dark was this amazing looking alien creature. Carlos told me that was the alien that Rick Baker had made when it was called Dark Skies. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, why aren't we working on this alien? So a few weeks later, Vince Prentice called me up and said, hey, Ken, Rob's going to be starting on a movie called The Thing. And wanted to know if I'd be interested in come working on it. And I thought, you know what? This is a pretty silly looking alien I'm working on now. I'm going to go over and work on the thing because it's going to be some really cool stuff we're going to do over there. So that's why I jumped over and started on the thing.
0: Yeah, on, on the spectrum of alien creature effects, uh, E.T. is definitely on the other end from the thing. Well, <laughs> go more to that. And so, again, when you coming on board, uh, Dave, uh, tell me about how you got involved and your role in the project.
4: Well, um, at that time I was working uh, in the special effects shop at Universal Studios and uh, we heard that the thing was coming on and um, it was pretty exciting. A lot of people were uh, hoping to get involved with it. The studio had hoped that Rob Bottin could do all the work at Universal Studios proper in the special effects shop. Um, Rob didn't like that idea because he had done so much work with John Carpenter on re-conceptualizing re the thing. Uh, let's, let's say rewriting a lot of it. And John was, had a lot of leverage uh, with the studio. And uh, they said, well, where else can we go? Because Rob would, would like to have his own separate private facility. So uh, north of the studio was um, a motion control facility that Universal had called uh, Heartland. And uh, they had abandoned the motion control business because they thought uh, this motion control digital stuff, that's not going to go anywhere. So they abandoned it. Most of the people that were working there uh, went to Industrial Light and Magic and uh, and uh, the rest of that's history. But So Rob now had this great facility to work in and uh, very private, <laughs> a lot of equipment still laying around there. I met him because this, the special effects shop asked if I would be interested in going out to Heartland and working with Rob Bottin on the mechanical animation. And uh, I said, well, sure. So I went out there and met Rob, and uh, we, for some reason, or or several reasons, whatever they may be, Uh, We hit it off really well, and I kind of seemed like I was sort of his big brother. I was a little older than he was, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, he said, I I want you involved in this, Uh, and so there I was, and I spent um, 11 months uh, out there. I was the first person out there and the last person to leave and um, worked with Rob uh, uh, several times after that. So that's how I got involved with Rob Bottin. I think it was actually a, a privilege uh, to be there and work with Rob. As I've said many times before, he there's a guy that has one of the most fertile imaginations of anybody I've ever met. He, he was pr- pretty, uh pretty crazy guy at times. <laughs> right, Ken? But his heart was there and he extremely dedicated to the job. I know that sometimes studio people would come over there and wonder what's going on. Why is it taking so long? And I remember Rob's reply one time was, I'm here to do a really great job. If you want a a mediocre job, I'll give you some names. (laughs) We worked six weeks on the budget just for Rob's work. He said he needed $10 million and they said fine <laughs> because the thing was carrying a lot of prestige and a lot of income for their universal studio and this industry is occasionally all about the money and so they uh, they went with rob
0: when we're talking about the early stages of how this film came together, another name that comes up is Mike Ploog, who is a storyboarding artist and actually well known for his work on Marvel Comics at the time. Who can fill me in a little bit about how Mike Ploog came on board and what that relationship was like?
4: This is what I was told, and I, I believe it's true. John Carpenter said, here's the script, read it, see what you think. He, being Rob, went up to John Carpenter's house and said, John, I I think there's some things that could be changed here, which would make this story even more attractive. And uh, maybe if we sketched some ideas, it would look more correct. And they called in Mike Plug, And he's sort of the the Dalai Lama of storyboard artists. And uh, he could sketch an eight by 10 picture in 60 seconds that's kind of like Melrose gallery quality. (laughs) Anyway, he sketched the entire script while john and uh, rob talked to him but mainly while rob was saying this is how i see it and according to what rob told me rob pretty well rewrote the script mike pluge of course uh, you know you know when he showed up uh, people started really thinking uh, boy this is this is going somewhere so anyway that's the mike pluge story that i know ken might know a little more about it i don't know
3: what i was told was that um according to John uh, that Rob first came to him uh, with some wild concepts that the thing can look like anything. It doesn't have to be one monster. It has the ability to transform to anything that has ever come across in his travels around the galaxy. I mean, John told Rob to go sit down with Mike and Rob was a big fan of Mike Plugs from his Marvel comic days. So that's when they went through the script shot by shot Yeah, a lot of things got adjusted, changed, and uh, then he went back.
4: Nice, that's good wording. Uh,
3: (laughs) So then Rob went back with a stack of storyboards to John, and they uh, said, "John says, okay, let's see what you got." And they put all the storyboards on the wall, and um, John thought, "Boy, this is very daring." He asked Rob, "Are you sure you can know how to do all this stuff?" And Rob said. No, <laughs> but according to a uh, Mike, uh, they initially in the first pass, they didn't allow the question about how we're going to do this to stifle the creativity. And they just went out, just did this, just, just did it as much as the imagination could come up with. According to Mike, they said, well, you know, it's up to Rob and his crew to figure out how to do that stuff later, which, uh, Dave and I were a big part of. And, uh, Typical day would be, uh, Mike would be coming in like at nine and work normal nine to five and Rob would come in around 11 and usually <laughs> stay there till like two or that three was in the on, morning. That,
4: that was on an early day.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And he would typically stay there till two or three in the morning and he was on a later shift than the rest of us. After that's when uh, Dave and I would meet up with Rob and the storyboards and we have in the conference room and we kind of huddle up and figure out how to achieve these effects.
0: We're going to talk more about those effects in detail, but I know that there's another name on the storyboarding front, Mentor Hoopner. What was the balance between what he did and what Mike did?
4: Yeah, Mentor Hoopner, he, uh, he came in to uh, to do some sketching, I guess we'll call her some rendering uh, on the different creatures, because, and, and I, I understand the definition of an illustrator is someone that their artwork is also designed to sell. They brought him in because the studio executives and they had a representative coming out to Heartland often. They they wanted to keep getting support for what we were trying to do. And uh, of course, there's always some people that are going to challenge what you're doing, and uh, especially people that are executives and seeing where their money is going. And so I think that mentor uh, sketches were really a super sales tool. What do you think, Ken?
3: Sure. I know that he was brought in uh, you know, about halfway through the production, would you say, yeah, Dave? Yeah. And I know he he kind of took over at one point Mike Plug towards the end had to go do Superman in England and meant there, meant or uh finished up the show. He was kind of responsible for the Blair Monster stuff at the end. Yeah. Dean here. You know, I just
1: have to comment a little bit on Mike Plug. I had worked on all these, you know, smaller films and we were lucky to get anything that looked sort of like a storyboard. And sometimes a director would uh, try to draw them, but they were stick figures, you know. You'd say, oh, well, yeah. we're going to shoot this uh, sequence that uh, looks like it's from second grade or whatever. Mike's storyboard started showing up. I looked at him and said, oh, my God, how dramatic, how visual, just pretty amazing. And I still have a pretty good set of them don't know if it was uh, foresight or I just had forgotten to clean it out, but I was going through stuff the other day and I looked at all of these um, storyboards and they are absolutely amazing works of art. You know, I keep thinking maybe I ought to put them online and sell them. But uh, (laughs) what was interesting is that I, I teach film classes now and then and storyboarding is something I talk about. And so I scanned uh, the whole sequence of the um, chest opening scanned all of uh, Mike's storyboards. Then I cut them next to uh, the split screen, next to the actual scene. And the students are always amazed to how, how the storyboards look almost exactly like the movie. You know, it's, it's a still on one side and the scene on the other. We shot some additional cutaways and things like that. But for the most part, what Mike Plug drew was so dramatic that that's what we, we shot and it's just an amazing, um, amazing thing to see how his storyboards, more than any, I think, any others that I've ever worked on, were the essence of the movie, but also the guide that we followed.
0: Given your long relationship with John Carpenter, how was this experience similar or different to some of the other films you did together?
1: Well, I think it's very, very similar in, in some ways. I had done all these low-budget movies, and I was always a little frustrated by the fact that the directors seemed to think of the, the camera as a device to record actors talking, and then uh, something blows up. <laughs> and I was so delighted on Halloween to find that John was interested in telling the story visually with the camera. So as we followed through with each subsequent one, it became evident that he was you know, exactly the kind of director I'd been looking for. And hopefully I was, you know, able to compliment what he was doing. So the thing was just a great visual storytelling experience for me. And I think Mike's work certainly influenced our perception of how to, how to see it, how to tell the story with a camera, which is what I had always wanted to do since I started in this. So it's, it was a great, great experience to, um, make a film that still holds up, you know, even, even though famously it wasn't a huge success when it came out, it has held up and is now, um, you know, considered to be a, a, a visual classic.
0: We could probably spend several hours talking about all the preparation and pre-production in pulling this film together, but let's go ahead and jump forward to principal photography, the first period of the film was shot up in Juneau, Alaska, started in mid-1981. Ken and Dave, you guys are hard at work back in Hollywood at the Universal Heartland studio. Well, it's nice and warm. And dry. Bruce, you're not on the film at this uh. point. So, Dean, tell us a little about the intentions of those first couple of weeks of filming in Alaska.
1: I was very delighted to hear that this film was not going to be shot in three or four weeks as quickly as possible. John's intention, and um, fortunately Universal's acquiescence, was to make a big-looking movie. You know, we were in a position to do it for a budget. You know, now I have no idea what it would cost, but in those days... It was a delight to hear. Okay, so first we're going to go up to Juneau, Alaska and do this big, expansive um, opening sequence. And then we're going to go down to Universal and we're building the set and we're going to refrigerate the stages so we get this authentic. In the meantime, they're building the set up in Stewart, British Columbia, and we're going to shoot all those extra. And suddenly the canvas Became very large, and I was delighted to uh, realize that. So, the, the Juneau, Alaska stuff, we uh, went up to Juneau. We uh, flew by helicopter, a small crew. There were maybe, I don't know, a dozen of us, and cameras and so forth. And we flew a half hour out over the mountains, over the glacier, and landed at this little rustic research camp that was used by uh, university students who were studying glaciology, or whatever people get fascinated with uh, by glaciers. We lived there in these little wooden huts, sitting up on a cliff, looking down at the glacier, at all of these mountains. And it was very primitive. The outhouses were literally that, outhouses. The kitchen was rustic, but served great stuff. It was always daytime. It never became night, so when we went to sleep, it was always by the clock, not by, hey, it's dark. So it was an amazing experience because it set up for a lot of us what an Antarctic research camp must really be like: the isolation, the uh, sense of all this huge nature around you, and uh, the fact that you were eating food that you know you just couldn't go down the street. The uh, opening sequence, which has the the dog which is, we will find out later, the creature. That was um, shot on these vast snow fields and, and it gave such a big dramatic opening to the film. Jed, by the way, was this amazing trained dog with concentration and he and his trainer worked so well together. And he added so much really initial personality to the, um, the sequence. It was an amazing experience to be in this environment that was so much like an Antarctic research camp that I'm sure it inspired all of us, including John.
0: You know, I want to put my AD hat on for a second. And I want to ask, when you're shooting these snow sequences, whether it's the dog running across or when the helicopter's flying, how do you reset something like that?
1: We're always aware of that. And I think um, we would set things up so that uh, the dog would run past the camera. And then knowing we couldn't get rid of the footprints in the snow, no matter what, with brooms or anything, we would then move the camera forward a little bit so that we were now standing on top of the dog tracks and had a new, fresh area of snow. So it was something that we always had to be be aware of. And um, it takes thought at first, because when you say, well, let's do another one, you say, well, wait, there's tracks. So over a period of time... I think we would begin to stage things knowing that we were going to have to get uh, fresh, untrodden, you know, snow.
0: Well, the shoot up in Alaska captures not only the opening of the film, uh, but also, uh, Dean, to your point, sort of the sense of what these folks are going through. Then we come back to the universal lot, where we're going to do the bulk of the filming. I think it's about six weeks, although I'm not sure on the specifics. Bruce, back to you. You talked about the refrigerated stages, Tell me more about getting to know the actors and just sort of how things were coming together on the Universal lot.
2: It was my first experience with an all-male cast. And, you know, at that time, most of the crew was male as well. So it was a much sort of less polite, less formal kind of environment in a way. I remember uh, the common expression when it was time to call in the actors wasn't, you know, bring in first team it was more like wheel in the meat uh was commonly uh used on the set um you know they they all had kind of different personalities so the first few days it was sort of getting to know everybody and uh i remember wilford Drimley was always a little bit of a curmudgeon and and wouldn't confirm his call time and things like that though he always showed up and performed but he was one of those guys it was an interesting group and and I think they gelled very early on and and it became a, a real you know close knit uh, group as actors do in in these kind of projects. And hey, uh, Bruce, um, just
1: as an observation to what you were saying, Wilford definitely started off being curmudgeonly. But I think he realized um, at least my sense was that that the principal cast, they like you know guys who would have been at an Antarctic uh, station, were all sort of you know, in this together. And so he began to moderate his his uh, <laughs> if that's a word, with all of the uh, rest of the uh, the crew. And um, it, it really sort of became a, a bonding experience for everybody, so um, it really became interesting. Sorry for interrupting.
0: Let's talk more about these refrigerated sound stages. We're talking about filming late summer in Los Angeles, I can see the benefits and I want to hear more from you, Dean, but from a practical perspective, this must've been extremely difficult.
1: Yeah. It was my, my first experience with working refrigerated. Um, We did it again subsequently on uh, Apollo 13, but the idea was how to see the breath. Now of course they can put it in digitally now. um, It's not an issue, but in those days you actually had to see the breath of the characters, so the whole sequence where they go down towards the end and they're setting the explosive uh, charges in the in the basement. That was the, um, a stage that was completely refrigerated, and the science of of it, as we learned, was that in order to see the breath in a cold environment, it has to be also high humidity. It has to be pretty close to a hundred percent if you can get it there, eighty percent anyway. So we worked on these um, stages where. They would set up three or or four very huge air conditioning units and just blow cold air, and then to raise the raise the humidity, uh, they put overhead what we called misters, and they were really just sort of uh, spray nozzles that uh, you know like you'd have on a, a paint sprayer, and um, they would spray water from the um, overheads the, the rafters down over the whole set. And in order to keep it up, because as we went in, our body temperatures and activity and the lights and everything would raise the temperature, the air conditioners uh, had to run in between every take, and also these misters had to run to keep the humidity up. But it was um, it was very effective and um, and very uh, interesting. And and what was interesting also is that the crew, because it got down to. 35 degrees or something just above freezing, we hoped. The crew had to wear parkas and everything on the stages because they were cold and and damp. Somebody said they uh, they mentioned that when the crew would go out on a break or to go outside or whatever, they'd come out in these parkas. And the Universal tour going by, the guy would point out the fact that they were shooting the thing and people would think they were all uh, actors, you know, I mean... (laughs) But uh, it was it was a fascinating experience for us to uh, to actually work in L.A., where it was always warm and sunny, and um, to have to work in uh, freezing conditions with uh, heavy parkas.
0: Bruce, as the DJ training, you must have been on and off that stage a hundred times a day. Were you ever mistaken for one of the actors in one of those big parkas? <laughs>
2: I don't know if I was or not. I remember the tours would go by and, and make a comment whenever they'd see us uh, outside the stage. But it was just a unique experience being completely bundled up, like Dean said, in and parkas and, and uh, that kind of thing. When it was, I think, September in uh, in L.A. and it was the, the hot part of the end of summer and everybody else on cruise on all the other Projects were running around in in short sleeves and and shorts in some cases, and you know we were definitely a standout when when you would pass our stage. I remember we also shot the uh, I think it was the Norwegian camp uh, that's early in the film when they go there, and again it's been burned out. So there's uh, that was another cold set that we shot early in the process on the refrigerated stage.
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. That was. One of the first times that we shot a refrigerated stage, I think, and um, and it was very effective because if you watch the sequence, I a lot of times I'll show it to a film class for you know the the strange things we do in this business, but there's an awful lot of great you know mist and breath uh, out of uh, uh, both of the characters, uh, including uh, of course
4: Kurt. But there's one thing that. Ken and I got, in, got involved in on that stage that was uh, winterized, we'll call it, when all of that cold had been turned off. Uh, we were asked to go in there and find out why there was such a horrible smell on that stage. The studio executives got a hold of security and said, uh, there's something dying in that stage. Something's really wrong. And, um, it was that time of year when it was pretty warm outside and the stages are not being refrigerated and the stage got real warm. And, uh, for one of the sequences, we needed a, uh, a large amount of, uh, entrails, intestines, stomachs, whatever. And, um, those products were picked up at a slaughtering rendering meat packing house. And, uh, Someone forgot to take them out the Friday night, and so Saturday and Sunday they were basically um, baking. And uh, it was it you had. To, when Ken and I went to that stage, walked right back out, <laughs> said, "Okay, hold your breath, run." And we went in there. I have never in my life realized the stench that rotting flesh <laughs> and entrails can take. And we were kind of the ones that were going to get blamed for that. So we opened all the stage doors and I knew people at the studio there that could help out. And and we got uh, the air conditioning turned on over the weekend so that when Monday morning showed up, uh, Bruce and all of his people would be happy with us. And it worked.
0: (laughs) Maybe that's a good transition into talking about some of the specific sequences. You did shoot at the Universal lot Uh, involving the special makeup effects. Ken, why don't you uh, name one of them that uh, comes to mind and then Dean from a camera perspective and then Bruce from a coordination perspective. Let's uh, break it down.
3: First, we did the stuff in the kennel sequence that had involved the actors. And we had the, uh, when the uh, thing catches on fire and uh, they come in. So we had to prepare these, a lot of these dog puppets. The first one that was created was the uh, Jed taxidermist dog. And that was attached to a uh, paint shaker. And the first time we see Jed shaking, trembling, is that scene where it's attached to the the paint shaker. Later, we we had gotten these dog hides from a a rendering plant in the city of Vernon. It's where the uh, LA County would dispose of their euthanized animals or roadkill. And there was a huge pit that uh, these dump trucks would come in the morning and dump these dead animals and there was a very large corkscrew at the bottom of this funnel that would chew these up and they would make animal protein byproducts. Uh, what we would do is we'd buy cases of beer for the, work, the workers and uh, we'd have one of our PAs wait to see if a malmute flopped out of one of these dump trucks. And they would stop the machine and they would go up and fish one out and pull the hide and, oh, that one's too ripe, throw that one back in. Every day they would come up with an assortment of dogs and they'd come and bring them back to Heartland. And, oh my goodness, this is a, this is a Siberian Husky. It's not a, no, that one goes back tomorrow. This one's too ripe. That one goes back. So once we had one that was, uh, you know, that we could use, we're going to take it back to the taxidermist that did the Jed dog. And he says, "Hey guys, uh, I'm right in the middle of hunting season. I can't accommodate. So I had to recruit the services of my dad and my grandfather and later my uncle to skin out these dogs and uh my dad said you know it's a lot different than skinning a game animal they're very greasy and fatty but uh, anyway once we had the hide we take it back the taxidermist would tan it up and then use a uh, a wolf taxidermist form we'd uh, chop off the legs shorten the torso and i would sculpt an expression that with the hide on and then pull the hide off and we would put the fake eyes in the fake teeth and then once this uh was completed, the hide was removed carefully, and then uh, Gunner, our mold maker, would mold this form. And from that, a a, uh, fiberglass uh, shell would be created. And then uh, that would be taken over to Dave's side with the mechanical effects.
4: Yeah, everything uh, that we did to mechanize or move things was directed very closely by Rob. And an example of how Rob works and how we worked with him On one of the dogs, like Ken mentioned, is shaking violently, we put inside of the form that Ken brought over electric drill motors, and we, instead of attaching a drill bit to the drill motor, we had um, offset weights, and we would turn those uh, drill motors on, and they would shake, and they would shake so violently that it would actually destroy the motors inside of the drill motor and they were high-end equipment too. I think we uh, destroyed about 11 of those. And uh, that's when I think we got a phone call from the studio uh, what's going on with the drill motors. But the reason that we had problems or successes like that was because Rob always believed that enough was never enough. And the more you could get, the better it was. And so, well, we're kind of at a critical speed on this particular gag, Rob. He says, run it up faster, faster, more, more. And that was that was the way Rob worked on everything. You know, as we've told our stories here, we found out that um, it paid off ultimately. And 38 years later, people are still wanting to see it. So that's just one, one gag, but... Uh,
3: well, in that sequence, we had quite a few different dog puppets. Uh, the first one in the sequence, when, in, when we viewed the film, was the head peeling back, which in, in four pieces. And that was, I think, it was one of those most difficult technical achievements. I think uh, Bob Worthington was uh, the one who was working on that. And the fiberglass form was cut into four pieces, and then it was dissected into very sp- small slits. And then spring steel was attached to it. And it was under tension that... Uh, it had to be reassembled with little uh, panel wire and little eyelets. It was very meticulous to get this done. This was actually the last sequence we shot, in, in, uh, and the film was waiting for this last little piece to be completed. So we shot that on a Friday, and we shot in one take. The the one with the dog head's pills back and tongue slapping around, because it took so long to rig. It took like two days to rig. So to reset it, we didn't have time to reset it. We had to get it in that one shot. Then the following Friday, we actually went up to Las Vegas, and we saw a sneak preview of the movie with this little piece that was added to it that they'd been waiting for. The next in sequence is the dog with the head peeled back and has an articulating tongue with hissing hoses flapping around, crab legs coming out of it. It was uh, on a race set, then it was puppeteered from underneath. We had a dog that got slimed with a fire extinguisher that they actually squirted the dog with an iridescent methacelulose slime. And then uh, there was this skinless dog, which was created by the Stan Winston crew. Uh, they were the ones that headed up the construction of that. When that was completed, they brought it over to the Heartland set. And the Heartland crew, we added the pilled dog head with a tongue in it and the tentacles that came out. That was all shot reverse. Then we had the uh, slimed dog in the corner that's covered with tentacles. We also shot that in reverse. We had to pull the, the, the tentacles away from the dog that um, Vince Prince he ran out of room and Rob kept saying, pull, pull, pull. So Vince had to just start spinning in circles and wrapping the tentacle around his body to make sure that all the tentacle got taken away from the dog. <laughs> and then we had the shot with the dog in the corner that was tied up with tentacles. And uh, we had a, um, a squib hit on that with uh, fun fur on that. Who rigged that, Dave?
4: I can't remember. Can, I cannot remember that. Uh, it'll come to me.
3: Okay, so we'll continue on. Was um, We had um, the uh, hands get pushed up into the ceiling. And those were gloves that were created, were sculpted by James Cummings. And Rob was actually wearing those gloves as they <laughs> crashed through the ceiling. Then we had the uh, the massive pulls up uh, cross frame and uh, has the uh, crab legs and the hoses f- uh, flopping around. And then we went up into that mass in the corner with eyeballs blinking and the jaws uh, chomping. And that rips open and revealing um, the dog tongue thing that opens up and reveals the... Uh, 12 rows of dog teeth, and moves towards camera. The uh, storyboard of it was just a vague, bulbous mass shooting towards the camera. The design was inspired from uh, uh, photos of a lamprey I had seen previously, and uh, I sculpted that on a set of plaster arms, and I puppeteered that from the back. But the action of the shot was sold by Dean's uh, camera work, the PLV shot of the camera moving rapidly towards McCready. That was sold the, the, the action of the attack.
0: Well, Dean, that's maybe a good transition to you. So we're talking about a sequence that's filmed in multiple parts. We've got the actors in the beginning. Ken, to your point, some of the bits that make the final sequence aren't being done until the very end of filming. Dean, how do you approach something like this as the cinematographer? And just what are the challenges of capturing this sort of action?
1: Well, you know, what was interesting was the fact that Rob had come to me and said, so for this sequence with the dogs and and also various others, If we shoot everything at normal speed, you're going to see the fact that the tentacles are whipping around, you know, with air and so forth at at normal speed. Oh, nice for that to be slow motion. And I said, yeah. And he said, but before that happens, if it could be normal speed. And I said, ah, I see. (laughs) Okay. This was way in advance of uh, servo motors and computer control this and CG, uh, you know, now you'd have to wonder how much of this sequence would be done, you know, computer generated. But in those days, everything had to be real. So uh, Rob said, is there any way we can change the speed, you know, just crank down the motor on the camera? And I said, well, if you do it in the middle of the shot, there's all of this technical stuff, which is... As the camera speeds up, there's less exposure, less light that gets to the film. But then as you turn it down, more light gets to the film. So you get this variation of exposure, it gives it away. And he said, oh, okay. I said, but, you know, we could do this with the shutter on the back. And I just started thinking. So I went to uh, Panavision, the camera company, and said, here's what we'd like to do. Is there any way we can change the exposure in the lens or the uh, shutter on the camera, as we changed the speed of the camera, they said, hmm, nobody's ever done that. So we tried various rigs, but the mechanics of it were not as accurate as we needed, and the motor speeds were not controllable, and we were way ahead of the curve technically. So we were never able to really do that. Now, of course, you can do it quite easily. That was one of the things that sort of indicated that Rob was trying to be ahead of the curve, uh, as were all of us on this film. And we took it as far ahead as we could. But now if we were to remake this film, you know, there'd be an awful lot of other technical um, achievements and and techniques we could use. Although um, they probably wouldn't be good enough for Rob because he was always trying (laughs) to be somewhere ahead of the curve.
4: Yeah, you know, Dean, that brings up something to my memory also, Nowadays, even on a commercial, you'll be watching on television, you'll see people walking at normal speed and the cameras doing normal shutter speed of 24 frames or whatever. And then uh, they slow the people down and then they're just walking in slow motion. You see it everywhere now. And the light stays perfectly the same. There's no smearing on the movements. It's just beautiful. every time I see that on a feature or on television like that, I instantly think of what you just said. And Rob always wanted to have that perfected. So even here all these years later, I see, yeah, they've done that. It's it's done. One of the things I think is so much fun about
1: working on a, a film like The Thing, but also any, you know, science fiction or uh, fantasy or something, we're always trying to to be ahead of the curve and give the audience something new, something that hadn't been done. So it's fun for that reason because it challenges your creativity. And and this film was one of the great challengers for me at the time. And um, it was John and Rob that were certainly instigators of it.
2: It's a good reminder that this was before all the visual effects were really available to us. And I think there's something amazing. And I think one of the reasons the film holds up so well in the practical effects and the puppeteering and so forth that went into creating these creature effects, there's something about a a real object that's in the same environment as the actors being filmed with them at the same time that uh, I don't think you quite get oftentimes from a visual effect created situation. I think uh, that's one of the beauties of Rob's work and and the way it was photographed on this film.
1: My feeling is that the audience really can sort of sense when they're looking at real and when they're looking at uh, CG stuff. And also very often the the CG guys, uh, because they can, they do. You know, so they're they're working away on on something. Uh, Very often, you have to wonder, are they working in their mother's basement? But anyway, you know, they'll say, oh, this is is exactly right. But, oh, you know what else would be cool? Why don't I also do this? And the other guy says, yeah, and you can also do this. And uh, as a result, uh, the CG stuff now starts to violate what we as a viewer, as an audience, recognize as the rules of nature, the rules of physics, you know, all of the stuff that we sort of understand, you know, just uh, subliminally. The thing really is effective because you can sense the reality, the, um, you know, everything looks like it really happened because, of course, it did. Uh, A testament to you guys and the um, great work you did to uh, accomplish that.
3: Well, I always uh, have told people when they ask me about the thing that it looks so real, believable. And I always say a major part of the success of the makeup effects can be directly attributed to Dean Kundys' work. And I always felt that you were a, a makeup fan when I first met you. You had talked about it and you were so involved in making this look believable that it's not going to be looked like rubber. I have ne- yet to work with another uh, DP that had was so involved in and in, took it seriously that guys, this is not real. This is a piece of rubber. We can do our best to make it look real. We can do the best paint job. We can do the best mechanisms. We could try to make it look as realistic as possible. Without working together closely with the DP, it's going to look like rubber, no matter what you do. So I really thank you, Dean, for that.
1: Well, thank you for your, your kind words. Um, you know, it, ironically, when I was at film school... Um, I had been interested in makeup and I did make up some effects and stuff on some student films uh, scars and and so forth. So when I graduated, my first two jobs were doing makeup on Roger Corman movies. So I've always had this uh, empathy for makeup and how difficult it is to uh, make it look real. So when when Rob and I uh, talked about it, he said, now, uh, I want to be sure that uh, everyone understands as, as hard as we tried on this, if you put a big light on it, it's going to look like a blob of rubber or plastic or whatever. And I said, well, we can enhance that. We'll just light the best areas and we'll put shadow and and so forth. So besides the sculpting with uh, the rubber, um, we also tried um, sculpting with light just to uh, make sure that the best textures were there, were and faded into uh, oblivion, it went into imagination, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the thing was always... To me, one of the, the fun things, because it was talking about working with light and, um, and a camera, uh,
2: but also in a world of real sculpted rubber and plastic. Since Ken had brought up the, the kennel sequence, I just wanted to say that that was one of the sequences I remember we shot in the actual set, and the various uh, dog transforming effects that they created were so involved and required so many puppeteers and people to operate that, um, I as a DJ trainee was kind of an extra hand available to do something. And I remember shooting a, a goo gun that uh, was sending, you know, goo out of, out of one of these, uh, morphing dogs just because they needed an extra hand to do it. And it was, It was great fun for me, but it was also great being a part of that experience.
4: Well, Bruce, you did a really good job. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about these refrigerated stages and we talked about sculpting with light and all these things, hands-on practical things. And years ago, um, when I was at Universal Studios, the head of the art department was Henry Bumstead. And he told me one time that in the early days before color, photography, color film. All of the stages were painted correctly to your eye. All of the costumes were beautifully matched color. And the palettes that that they used were all correct for our vision practically. But it was black and white. It was all black and white film. So what's the problem? It was the actors, get the actors into their part, into their role, same thing. You walk on a stage that's 35 degrees and there's icicles forming on the stage walls and your breaths and your cold, you're in it. You're in Alaska and it does something for the actors. They become part of it. And so that's the big payoff on the practical end of things, I think.
0: I think the same can be said to your point uh, about the creature effects that actually seen some of these effects helps inform the actor reaction as well versus a lot of the visual yeah. stuff that, that they're going, yeah. that they're doing. Now. Yeah. I, I
1: know that often when we know it's going to be a CG creature or person or effect or whatever, it's like, um, you, you have to give a, a yellow tennis ball to the actor and say, okay, this is the most terrifying thing you've ever seen and action. Suddenly, if he he hasn't seen or she hasn't seen the paintings and the renderings and drawings and models and stuff, they have no idea what they're looking at other than the yellow tennis ball. You know, so that's another thing as you bring up um, for the stuff to be right in front of the actors really gives them uh, something to work off of.
0: Well, we've got more stories to tell about the collaborations that help bring this film together, but we're going to save that for another episode. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and the launch of season six. Subscribe now so you don't miss the second part of our look behind the scenes of John Carpenter's The Thing. Your feedback is most welcome and greatly appreciated. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, below the line, one word, dot biz, That's b i c. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. And if you yourself are a new listener and enjoyed this episode, you should peruse our past seasons and see what shows or themes might interest you as well. The topic of the show is capturing the title on facebook you can find photos and other behind the scenes materials and podcasts below the line and finally you can follow the podcast on twitter and instagram it's at pod below the line thanks to curtis fye for our music and john Wan for our logo the logo is available on t-shirts mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com be safe out there hope to see everyone again next episode Listeners, we've got a bonus for you this week. Near the start of this episode, Dean Cundy referenced the video he uses for film classes with Mike Plugge's storyboards lined up against the chest opening scene so students can see the similarities between what Mike Plugge drew and what they actually shot. Well, Dean has made this video available to us, and you can watch it on Facebook at Podcast Below the Line or on our new YouTube channel, which is a little harder to find because you have to search for it, but if you type in below-the-line podcast, it should pop up. Just look for the Iwo Jima-inspired logo and my name in the description. The video is only three minutes, and if you're interested in this kind of thing, definitely worth your time. Enjoy.